This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, January 30th. The United Nations is pleading for countries, including Canada, to reverse their decision to cut off a lifeline to Gaza. The minister responsible for international aid is just ahead. And medically assisted death for the mentally ill will not be available this year as expected. Coming up, the impact on those suffering and waiting. Plus, the ethics watchdog tells MPs the Prime Minister's free trip to Jamaica did not break the rules. Does that end the controversy? The federal government announced today it's sending an additional $40 million in aid to Gaza. But funding for Gaza's main aid agency, UNRWA, remains frozen. That's after Israel alleged 12 UNRWA employees were involved in the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. The head of the United Nations is urging donor nations to resume that lifeline or risk making the humanitarian crisis in Gaza even worse. Ahmed Hussein is the Minister of International Development. He joins me now from the House of Commons foyer. Minister, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, in, in about 30 minutes from now, uh, donor countries, including Canada, are going to meet with the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres about this funding issue. Is there anything the Secretary General can say at this meeting to change your mind about pausing the funding? Well, first of all, we're very much encouraged by the fact that the United Nations itself and its legal arm and other oversight bodies have uh, agreed to launch an investigation into these really troubling and disturbing allegations. Uh, we've taken the prudent measure of pausing funding. Uh, we value the work uh, that UNRWA has done uh, and continues to, to do in, in, uh, in providing much-needed humanitarian support to, uh, to civilians in the region, including in Gaza. Uh, but today, we, Canada stepped up and continues to step up in a big way by providing an additional $40 million to other international trusted partners, including the World Food Program, the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, the uh, UNICEF, World Health Organization. This $40 million in, is in addition to the $60 million that has already been dispersed. So we have centered on making sure that those who need help get the help that they need uh, as quickly as possible. So, so just, just to go back to the original question, though, it, does, it sounds like there's nothing the Secretary General can say today that would reverse this pause. It's really incumbent on um, the outcome of this investigation. What would you need to see in this investigation for Canada to resume giving funding to UNRWA? Well, as I said, we've, uh, we're very much disturbed by these allegations. We've expressed those concerns. Uh, I have to uh, per personally to the head of UNRWA, uh, Philippe Lazzarini. The UN itself has taken the extraordinary step of firing the employees as well as launching uh, an investigation. We await the results of that investigation to make sure that uh, we, we, are, we are satisfied with the, with the results as well as uh, any recommendations that come from that uh, investigation and any, any changes, uh, potential changes to, to how UNRWA functions. But the fact of the matter is we're still centered on making sure that we deliver much needed humanitarian supplies to the people of Gaza and the $40 million that we announced today will do exactly that. We have other partners including Canadian partners, international partners who are on the ground in addition to UNRWA and they are have and continue to deliver much needed uh, food, medicine, and other supplies. And this 40, addi 40 additional million dollars that we announced today will go a long way in making sure that, that those supplies continue to reach the most vulnerable people, including in Gaza. 
Okay, I, I do want to talk more about the aid uh, sure. in just a second, but, but just on UNRWA. So this investigation is happening. These allegations by Israel, they have not been denied, as Israel has criticized UNRWA many times in the past, but there's a, a level of response here and seemingly yes. a level of credibility to these allegations that... that, that are different than uh, some of the allegations we have seen in the past, certainly not all of them. So if these allegations are proven, what is it you need to see from UNRWA for Canada to resume its relationship with this organization? Is it systemic reform? Is it better vetting and screening of the people they would employ? Because they have many employees inside Gaza, or does the possibility that these dozen or so could permanently end Canada's relationship with this organization? Well, I don't want to, David, I don't want to prejudge the results of this investigation. I also don't want to prejudge our reaction, uh, our future reaction to the results of this investigation. We trust that the United Nations will conduct a thorough, uh, very fruitful investigation, and we await those results, as many of our partner countries are doing the exact same thing. They've taken the prudent action of pausing funding, Pausing all funding to UNRWA until until we're satisfied that that the that the investigation is completed and and that and that we see a credible process emerge from that. We have collectively, uh, both us, the United States, the United Kingdom, and many of our partners have over the years funded UNRWA because we understand the importance of UNRWA on the ground, its presence, its reach, and its history in, in providing much-needed uh, support to Palestinians. However, these allegations are extremely troubling, and we're very concerned with them. And that's why we've taken the position that we will have a pause on all funding to ensure that we give the time necessary for the investigation to be completed. However, we're also at the same time simultaneously not ending our support to Palestinians. We are stepping up in a big way, recognizing that Palestinians need more humanitarian support today than ever before by providing 40 additional million dollars to organizations like the World Food Program. $13 million, $16 million to the World Food Program, millions more to UNICEF, World Health Organization, and, uh, and the ICRC. That's what we're doing while we wait for the results of this investigation. But, but Minister, as you know, it, it's the presence and reach of UNRWA which has made it valuable for the delivery of aid to the people inside Gaza. There's a coalition of about 20 aid, aid organizations to say, UNRWA is the organization best equipped to get the $40 million worth of help that you've announced today to I, the people. I, I, recognize, I recognize the reach, the history, and the extent of presence These that other UNRWA organizations has. can't get in, right? Uh, I mean, you've no, I, actually, that is not the, the, the case. I, I have met with the head of the World Food Program on more than one occasion. Uh, she has informed me of thousands of trucks from... Uh, from, uh, from World Food Program that have gotten in, so has support from the World Health Organization and, and, and the uh, ICRC and others. But having said that, we do value the work of UNRWA, but we, we have to take the prudent action of pausing funding until we find, uh, we, we, we receive the results of this investigation. But make no mistake, our efforts are centered around uh, ensuring that we're meeting the needs of uh, civilians who have been impacted by this conflict, and that includes uh, Palestinian civilians in Gaza. And our support today, additional $40 million, will do exactly that. And this also includes Canadian partners, by the way. You've been criticized by the New Democrats for this decision. Uh, Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, has called UNRWA a terrorist organization. Do you share uh, the conservatives' concerns uh, about the implications of these allegations in terms of uh, what may be happening inside Gaza with UNRWA workers? When Pierre Poilev uh, calls UNRWA a UN body, 
when he calls UNRWA a UN body, a terrorist organization, it's irresponsible and it's reckless. And it again shows a lack of understanding and leadership on this issue. Uh, what is important is to, to take the steps that we've taken, which is to pause funding pending the results of this investigation. We, don't, we believe in the United Nations. They don't. Uh, he has a prominent member of his caucus who has asked Canada to withdraw from the United Nations, uh, sponsored a petition to that effect. Uh, Canada is a founding member of the United Nations, and we believe that the United Nations has taken the right step in investigating these disturbing allegations. But we're continuing support for Palestinian uh, innocent civilians in Gaza by providing an additional $40 million. This brings us to $100 million, making us one of the top countries, one of the top donor countries uh, in, in terms of responding to the needs of civilians caught in this conflict in Gaza. The National Council of Canadian Muslims is, is uh, disappointed in this decision. They say they're no longer going to meet with the Prime Minister. They feel as if your government is not responding to the concerns of the community and have not handled uh, the response to the needs of the people of Gaza appropriately. What's your response to that? Comment? I met uh, with representatives from NCCM yesterday and I, I, I heard uh, their frustrations on their concerns. But we've also met, uh, I joined the Prime Minister yesterday together with Minister Virani uh, in, uh, in Gatineau meeting with uh, leaders in the Muslim communities. I, we've always uh, sought out more engagement with various communities who are uh, expressing concerns and, and ideas and comments and questions about this conflict. And we'll continue to do that. We've also, obviously as a government, taken a number of steps to deal with uh, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia particularly related to uh, making sure that we protect communities and ensure that everyone not only feels safe but is also safe in their own communities. So uh, the fact of the matter is we, we're fighting anti-Semitism and Islamophobia at home while making sure that we meet our international obligations to help the most vulnerable and, and, and have uh, a robust response to the humanitarian needs of people who are in conflict zones, including in Gaza. And today's $40 million announcement ensures that Canada continues to step up in a very big way. Minister, one final question, if I may. Your department falls under the umbrella, as I understand it, of Global Affairs Canada. We had news yes. this afternoon that you're investigating a prolonged data security breach following the detection of malicious cyber activity affecting the internal network used by Global Affairs Canada staff. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about this uh, privacy breach, what appears to have been a hack, and the impact it's having on the operations of the department? Well, we take all, uh, so, uh, all sorts of breaches of, of, of privacy and data in any government department, and we've always been very vigorous and, and quick to respond to those uh, breaches. I commend uh, the civil servants who are equipped and trained uh, in their professionalism and dedication to take this on, and uh, of course we're very much concerned with this. Ahmed Hussein, Minister of International Development, thank you for your time today, sir. Thank you for having me. Danny Glenwright is the President and CEO of Save the Children Canada. Danny Glenwright, it's good to speak with you again. Good to be with you, David. You, you heard what the Minister had to say there today, $40 million in additional aid, but none of it going to UNRWA. Uh, well, what's your reaction to this move by Canada? Yeah, you know, David, we're deeply alarmed about the suspension of aid and funds to UNRWA because, simply put, no other aid agencies, including Save the Children, will be able to do their work without UNRWA. It provides as much as 80% of all humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza, 
And we rely on it for many, many things from trucking and hosting and holding our supplies to providing um, access to a desalination, uh, to other education facilities, to the temporary shelters that it's running. So uh, I, I, we think that, you know, we, we, we wish there wasn't a politicization right now of life-saving assistance. We, we are calling on uh, governments, including Canada, to reinstate aid to UNRWA. It's urgent. And, and frankly, we will not be able to operate it to provide any life-saving assistance without UNRWA. And the same is true of all aid agencies working in Gaza. Okay, so I, I raised this with the minister earlier in the show, and I made the point that a lot of the aid organizations, and we've spoken many times, and we've had Samurai Little Jabber from the World Food Program and others on this show, they can get in, but not at scale. That's the challenge. And, and, and there is this reliance on UNRWA. So, so with this change, how bad can a bad situation that, that's already bad, how much worse can it get with this? You know, it's, it's something I don't really want to consider, David. We're talking about a situation right now which is looking to be the worst humanitarian crisis of the 21st century. The IPC, which is the technical agency that uses evidence-based data to classify food insecurity, says that 90% of the people of Gaza are facing acute food insecurity, and we know that as many as half a million are now starving. And the IPC says this is the highest number in any area or country since it started taking numbers. So it's perverse. At a time like this, with a humanitarian crisis like this, for governments to be cutting their aid to the one agency that provides the lion's share of humanitarian life-saving support to the people of Gaza, who have been suffering over the past four months in ways that I've recounted on your show many times mm. and that people have been watching, uh, it's, it's just it's not the appropriate response. I should also say, we support and we're very uh, welcoming of the immediate and swift uh, investigation that the UN is doing into these 12 members of the UNRWA staff. And I think that we must support that because the atrocities of the 7th of October were horrific. But the two can't, you know, be, we can't be waiting for an investigation to end because lives are hanging in the balance right now in Gaza. But, but how do we reconcile that? Because, you know, there's been a lot of criticism by UNRWA from Israel over the years, and, and, and it's a, a lot of it's been disputed and rebuffed, but this was taken very seriously, given the substance and the nature of these allegations, practically immediately, as I understand it. How can countries justify giving money to an organization with these allegations hanging over it, right? Like it becomes a huge challenge for their domestic population and just their own consideration. How, do, how, how would they reconcile this? You know, as I say, this should be taken very seriously. We urge the UN to take this very seriously. And at the same time, this is a very small number of unrest staff. We're talking about 12 people out of more than 13,000 staff operating in Gaza. And so those 13,000 staff are keeping the entire population of Gaza alive. Right now we have 2.1 million people in need of humanitarian assistance just to stay alive. And the UNRWA staff, as well as any other aid agencies, including Save the Children who have been working in Gaza, have been working in impossible conditions. Over the last four months, UNRWA has lost more than 150 of its staff who have been killed in the fighting. So... You know, it, what we're saying is an investigation is needed. It must be swift. It must be thorough. But we also need to continue to provide support to this agency that is keeping so many people alive. Both can happen at the same time.
There, there have been persistent allegations, though, that, that understaff, uh, the, the, it's far more widespread. Their connections with Hamas or Islamic Jihad or whatever the organization is within Gaza, that it goes beyond these 12 staff. And we've had uh, the conservative leader, Pierre Pauliev on Sunday, refer to UNRWA as a terrorist organization. And there were Republicans in the United States pushing for a permanent end um, uh, to all funding uh, to UNRWA in the wake of these allegations. Uh, what's your reaction to the way the politics of this is playing out? Look, we're, you know, we're a humanitarian agency, and I'll tell you that we're not going to get involved in the politics. What we are continuing to call for is a definitive ceasefire. We are continuing to call for safe and unfettered access so that agencies, including UNRWA, including Save the Children, can provide humanitarian aid, because right now we can't do that safely. We're calling as well for a suspension of all arms sales to Israel and to any Palestinian armed groups. We're calling for the release of hostages, as well as all children he- held in Israeli military detention. And those are, those are areas where Save the Children works, and those are areas in which we think are very urgent right now. I'll leave the politics to the politicians, but just to say we have the lives of 2.1 million people hanging in the balance. And I think it's it, it, unconscionable to uh, shudder or stop aid to the one agency that is providing 80% of any humanitarian assistance that's getting into that population who is suffering collective punishment right now. There is nowhere for them to go safely in Gaza. There's nowhere for people in Gaza to flee or leave. And until there's a ceasefire, you know, we need to continue support to those agencies that are there and are providing assistance. Uh, I, I suspect that is the argument that the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, is making to at least 10 of the donor countries that have suspended aid at a, in a meeting that started in the past hour at, at the UN in New York. Uh, there is some cash reserves in UNRWA to allow them to continue operations for a period of time, but we don't really know exactly how long that will go. Watch your sense. I mean, this investigation could take a while. How long uh, before the capacity runs out if if the freezes aren't lifted or if new sources of funding aren't found? You know, the situation is dire right now. As I say, it is likely the worst humanitarian crisis we've seen in the 21st century. More people facing starvation right now than anywhere else in the world. So, you know, a day or two, it, it can't get worse. So regardless of, you know, all of the machinations behind the scenes, what we need right now is to continue scaling up aid we should be scaling up funding for agencies like UNRWA right now. It's essential, and it's what's the only way that we're going to get out of this and keep as many people as possible alive. Danny Glenwright with Save the Children Canada. Uh, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks, David. The federal government is defending its decision to delay the expansion of medically assisted death to include those suffering from mental illness. It's the second time they've pressed pause on the legislation. Every single health minister from every single province, every single territory telling me they're not ready. The question here is a state of readiness. And so what I, what I think we're going to be looking for on that basis is the preponderance of reasonable opinion um, that the system is ready. Uh, and at this point in time, that isn't the case. James Cowan is a member of the board of directors for the advocacy group Dying with Dignity, and he joins me now. James Cowan, it's good to speak with you. Thank you for having me. So your organization says the work has been done to move forward now. How do we reconcile that with the reports and the statements from various governments saying Canada's just not ready to do this? Well, I think you have to go back and look at what was said at the time that the uh, postponement, the sunset clause was extended last year, and Minister Lametti was very clear as to what the markers were. There needed to be 
the consideration of the report of the expert panel. There needed to be a, an educational program developed so that clinicians could uh, be prepared for this. There needed to be better data collection. They needed to, the regulators across the country needed to have time to prepare uh, regulations and guidelines. Uh, and all of those markers have been met. Uh, so there are obviously some people in this country who uh, do believe that the system isn't ready, but uh, many more, and particularly those who are actually engaged in doing assessments and uh, delivering MAID, uh, they've testified before the committee uh, that they were ready. And the regulators uh, indicated that they were regularly regulated because they had to be. And, right. and the assessors and providers said that they were ready to go. And um, so I'm personally disappointed that the government uh, now intends to kick the ball down the road uh, for some indefinite period of time. I don't know how long that is, but I'm more disappointed for the relatively few Canadians who meet the very strict criteria and were hoping and waiting for the day when they'd be able to apply for MAID, for MAID and uh, if they were successful to uh, receive that service. But that's not going to be the case. That's uh, very disappointing. Uh, obviously, there are consequences on moving too fast on something like this, but as you point out, there are consequences on, on, on moving too slow uh, well, on something like this, right? It, it's, it's, it's a, given the stakes of the issue, it's a challenge to navigate, and, and they don't seem ready to proceed right now. No. Well, I don't know who they are, but I, I think well, back. I, w I was a member of the Joint Committee uh, of, the, of the House and Senate back in 2016, and uh, we made recommendations. The government acted. And there was no sort of waiting period then. C-14, the original framework for MAID, was introduced and the system uh, coped and adapted. And uh, we now have five or six years of experience. And I think the experience for almost everybody that I've heard of who has had a connection with it, it's been a very positive experience. And I think Canada should be very proud of the made regime which exists now. This expansion to for mental illness as the sole underlying condition, we, we've had mental health practitioners on this show who were who concerned about the preparedness of people in the field and the system to properly handle this in terms of assessments and recommendations. The par we've just had a parliamentary committee recommend it be delayed and we've got a letter signed by Nova Scotia, Alberta, Ontario, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, British Columbia, and the territories calling for the government to indefinitely delay this. So, so what do you think it would take well, to get to those people uh, to, to support your position? Well, I, I think it is an, it's an individual choice. I mean, there, there's no, there are, as you know, there are conscience provisions built into the legislation so that any health professional who feels that for religious or ethical or moral or political reasons, ideological reasons, doesn't want to participate in the assessment or delivery of MAID, they don't have to do that. Uh, but individual Canadians, in my view, have a right and to continue to discriminate against Canadians simply because their suffering is caused by mental illness rather than physical illness, I think is not only discriminatory, but it's contrary to the Charter of Rights. And I feel absolutely confident that in due course, if this extension, if this exclusion is extended, there will be a court challenge. And in my view, 
that court challenge will be successful. My colleague uh, Louis Bluam with Radio Canada uh, has been reporting that um, the, the delay will go past the next election. This will not be dealt with necessarily uh, in this parliament. Um, what would a delay of, of that magnitude mean for people who have mental illness and, and are looking for this as an option? Well, as I said earlier, David, I think they'll be very, very disappointed, and I'm disappointed for them. I think they deserve better, uh, and uh, they are continuing to be discriminated against. And I, as a person who is a strong supporter of the Charter, I think that's wrong. And I, I regret that the government is taking this step. I, I, you, you spoke about a letter. I did have a, uh, somebody sent me the letter within the last half hour I had a look at. I couldn't find a date on it. I don't know when that was sent. Uh, do you know that? Uh, no, it isn't dated as I can see, but it, it thanks uh, Minister Holland, the health minister, for chairing uh, the health minister's meeting in Charlottetown in, in November uh, of yeah. last year. So I, I would assume it's, it's sometime in the last month or so, and it seems to coincide uh, with, with, with what's uh, been happening, at least in terms of the parliamentary uh, committee uh, doing its review and, and leading up to the release of its report. But it seems pretty clear that a lot of the people running a lot of the health system in the country they don't feel ready to go. Well, I'd, I'd, make, I'd make two points. One that uh, I don't believe, and I stand to be corrected, but I think I'm correct, that not, not a single one of those ministers, not a single one of those governments made uh, a presentation to the Joint Committee. I don't think there was testimony from any provincial politician, health minister, premier, attorney general, uh, that made that point. So I'd make... I, I'd, I'd say that. I would also say from my perch here in Nova Scotia that uh, Dr. Kubitz, who is the, um, the director of the MAID program in Nova Scotia, did testify for the, before the committee, and he said the system was ready in Nova Scotia. I would, and also Dr. Gus Grant, who is the CEO of the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Nova Scotia and was or is the chair of the regulators across the country said that the regulators are ready because that's their job to be ready. Uh, just, yeah, no, no, I, I hear you on that. Uh, uh, but just as a, as a final point, James Cowan, I mean, it, Mark Holland did say that they do intend to proceed with this expansion. The liberals do. It's just a question of the timeline. The, conser well, the conservatives are calling for a, a permanent end to the expansion uh, of the yeah. made regime. What, what would be the consequences of, of, of a permanent uh, pause on the expansion of made to people with mental illnesses? Well, I'm advised by people who are constitutional experts, and I'm not, uh, that that would be clearly contrary to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, pause, there may be some basis upon which a pause is legitimate, but there have already been two pauses now. There were the original two-year uh, two sunset clause extended for a year, and now extending it again. Uh, I... I think that's very difficult to justify. There wasn't anything like that when MAID was introduced in the first place, and I think it's a fair comment to say that the system coped just fine. And I have no doubt uh, that and the evidence before the Joint Committee was that those who would actually be doing the work, the assessors and providers, are ready to provide, uh, to assess this people who are applying for MAID and if they qualify to deliver that service. And so it appears that the government has made the determination that those 
persons are going to have to wait even longer. And as, if, as you suggest, if there is a change of government, then uh, uh, that wait may be longer. And I think that's very, very unfair and very unfortunate. James Cowan with Dying with Dignity Canada. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you for having me, David. An issue that's dogged the Prime Minister for most of the new year may have been settled. Canada's ethics commissioner told MPs before a parliamentary committee today that true holiday travel did not break ethics rules. I'm not responsible for the spokesman of the Prime Minister and the way he characterizes our interaction. I can only tell you what happened. They consulted us, we gave advice, they went to Jamaica. If it had not been an acceptable gift, it would have had to be reported on our website. 30 days have passed and nothing has been reported. Von Finkenstein said the vacation didn't break the rules around gifts or travel for elected officials because the state was a gift from a longtime family friend. The commissioner said, quote, I don't see why just because they're well off, they can't exchange gifts. So what does the power panel make of this? Michelle Cadario is a former liberal campaign director. Kate Harrison is a conservative political analyst. Matthew Dubay is a former NDP MP. And Emily Nicola is a columnist with Le Devoir. Hello, gang. Um, Michelle, uh, let's start with you. The liberals have been saying this, uh, but now we have the ethics commissioner saying it at committee for the world to hear. What does this do to the conversation about the Jamaican vacation? Well, I, I think the damage has kind of been done, um, you know, and clearly he did nothing wrong. As they've been saying all along, they consulted with the commissioner's office before the trip, they, and they clearly got uh, no pushback about what they had, were intending to do. And as he clarified, as he stated again today, there was nothing wrong with it. But, you know, it's another thing if it's the smell test. And, you know, I think that uh, the Conservatives have had a lot of fun over the last few weeks um, bringing this up, no matter what the topic is. Um, and you know what? Fair game. Um, it was kind of an own goal net, uh, or net on your or goal in your own net. So um, I think that uh, it's probably been implanted in uh, a number of people's minds. And whether Mr. Finkelstein said one thing or another today, I don't think that too many people are tuning in. They've uh, probably already decided on the issue. Kate, uh, how does a politician navigate this? That if you're you're going to be criticized if you violate the ethics rules, mm -hmm. and then you're going to be criticized if you comply with the ethics rules if people don't like the look of your ethical behavior. You know what I mean? It's a yeah. I, I think the way to navigate it is by pursuing a vacation option that maybe doesn't land you into a conversation with the ethics commissioner to begin with, right? So the fact that if you're pursuing something where you know you're accepting a gift from a friend or hospitality or what have you, um, and that necessitates a conversation with the ethics commissioner, you might want to think about whether or not that's the right thing to do at all versus paying your own way, like most other Canadians, for their own trip. Um, I, I'm with Michelle. I think that the damage is done for the political constituency that thinks Trudeau is you know, largely out of touch or not empathetic to their pocketbook concerns. This trip seems very out of touch at a very unopportune time. Um, you know, By the letter of the law, it is okay, um, but there's a pretty good conversation to be had about whether or not it was the best judgment. So, so Matthew, on, on the quote I read from the commissioner, I don't see why just because they're well off they can't exchange gifts. I mean, we know the prime minister comes from a privileged background, from a reasonably wealthy family, and has wealthy friends. Um, should, he be, should he pay a political price for that, for living the lifestyle he grew up with? I mean, how do you think this plays? 
Oh, I think that's that's the issue. That's the distinction, right? What's legal and what's call it moral, call it political, what have you. And I think ultimately that's you know that's the decision that he has to live with. But I, I do. I do think it's fair game for him to take that vacation. I also think at a time where he's purporting to express empathy, and I'm not, you know, don't mean to, to state what his true intentions are, but the appearance that it gives is anything but, right? And I think that's, that's the problem ultimately. And look, any of us who've been in elected office, and I can't say I've ever experienced anything of that scale, but you're always careful about what you do, even in your personal life. It's an unfortunate reality, especially in this day and age where everything gets scrutinized, and for him even more so, with a security detail that follows you everywhere, like all that information is going to come out. We don't know where a lot of politicians vacation. Arguably, others might might benefit from similar things. We don't know because they don't have the RCMP going with them. They don't need to take the government plane, all that sort of thing. So, um, but ultimately, you know, again, just comes back to the fact that you at a, at a time of of arguably economic, you know, not. To, crisis is maybe overstating perhaps but some people are certainly feeling it in their personal lives you have to govern yourself accordingly it's just the sacrifice you make uh, in public life and public office Emily, uh, where are you on this? Uh, it seems it's an issue where even a clearance from the ethics commissioner uh, doesn't seem to matter because people just don't like the look of this thing Yes, it's not an ethical question uh, and I think we should or the conservative or everybody that's been looking at this issue should um, at least be honest with themselves that this is not an ethical concern. So it's been in the past when there's been, you know, undue influence, but that was never the case in this in this situation. It was always an issue of rich people being rich <laughs> and while people are being poor. Uh, that's the issue. Uh, and it's not an ethical dilemma. It's not a crime. Uh, but there, it is a perception issue that, you know, and wealth is not just how much money you have. Uh, wealth comes as well in your networks. And so when uh, people who are rich are riching together um, in uh, the economy that we're facing now, uh, and that person is the prime minister, uh, it, it, it is uh, candy for opposition parties in terms of painting an image of the prime minister as being out of touch. Um, and that's what happened. Um, and it has nothing to do with it, with ethics per se. That being said, it does open up a conversation on travels and gifts, uh, you know, travel as gifts for all elected officials, all MPs. And I think that conversation is much more interesting, especially given um, the start of the, uh, the, the, the hearings on um, the, the question of uh, for, for an interference in our electoral system. There's been so many... Uh, different uh, organizations that are attached to foreign countries that have been offering MPs uh, travel as gifts in the last in the last years and um, we're talking about dozens and dozens of, of dollars and so if that is something that we can look into now that we're on that file anyway I think that might be more productive uh, than going back on damage that's been done uh, because also the holiday is slow new season from a po so from a political judgment thing of course of course people were going to milk uh, that cow as long as long as they could you, you make a good point about all of the junkets that are there for committees and offered by interest groups and, and flying politicians and, and sometimes even their families of various parties, not mm -hmm. just any one party around the world as, as something that maybe needs a little bit more, more digging. But, but Michelle, on this one, like we know where the Prime Minister went on vacation because the RCMP has to go. You can track his plane. It's a government plane. Uh, it's, it's a Canadian Armed Forces plane. So, so we know what he's traveling on and he's required to travel that. But, you know, should we know where... I don't know, Jagmeet Singh goes on vacation, where Mr. Blanchet, where Mr. Polyev go on vacation, or is this just something that, that we get from the Prime Minister? Because we don't really know necessarily 
what other party leaders are, are, are doing uh, on the holidays? We don't know because it's not taxpayer funds. Mm. But what I will say is the Prime Minister is allowed a vacation. And the nature of his job, the nature of the security level that needs to be around him, he needs that, that government plane and he needs that, that uh, security. Um, and because of who he is, he needs a, a little bit of privacy as well. So I completely defend taking a vacation and taking a vacation protected as you should be as the Prime Minister of Canada. That is his right, and that is his right for his family. I think that the issue is um, about where and potentially what you did. And that's just, to me, a, a bit of a political question because we know every year, mm. without fail, no matter who's in government, the opposition is going to make hay about where the prime minister went for vacation. They did it to us. They, they, when I was there, they, they always do it. Um, and we did it too. But we should know that, and in a time politically when, as Emily said, families are suffering, um, people can't quite afford taking necessarily a luxury vacation when they're worried about remortgaging their house, it was a political decision that probably should have been rethought, um, especially when you have, you, you know, your, your caucus now probably having defended on the doors. Right. And so I think it's just about judgment, but it's not about denying the person um, going on vacation, how he needs to as prime minister. So, so Kate, let's game this out. Let's look ahead to next Christmas, assuming there is no election and no change of government, and the prime minister wants to go somewhere warm, uh, mm. because a lot of people do, especially in an Ottawa winter, let's be honest. Where do you go where you can get the security, the privacy, and the control of the environment um, that doesn't offend the decency of Canadians. How do you do this? They can build on Team Canada and go to Florida, maybe, or time to annex Turks and Caicos. But like, <laughs> I, I, I think it's more about choosing um, not the Ferrari option, sure. right? And that and that was kind of the issue here. I, I, I don't think well, there are the many Corolla people. What's the option for a prime minister? You know what I mean? What's the Honda Civic out there? I think because the, this is a prime minister. This is not the first offense, right? Like, expensive tastes and a, and a lifestyle that is a little bit high flying. Um, so I think the damage is done if he decides to, you know, do a canoe trip in the summer instead of go somewhere else, then, you know, I, I don't think Canadians will be all of a sudden more attuned to thinking that he's in touch with their concerns. I think that because we've had a repeated pattern of behavior for the last seven, eight years, uh, the die has kind of been cast. And I, I think if you're the Prime Minister, you don't really care at this point. Like, it doesn't, it, nothing really justifies why he took this trip to begin with if he was concerned about the optics, because we had ethical violations with Aga Khan and others. So he's he's already decided that this is not something that he think he is he's vulnerable to politically. So why would he not just keep doing exactly what he's been doing? Sure it makes for bad headlines for a month or two, right. but then um, he carries on as usual. Right. So but Matthew like, like you know say it's Prime Minister Singh, Prime Minister Polyev, you know, uh, where, where can they go with the security and staffing considerations and the privacy considerations of a G7 leader who wants to go somewhere for Christmas, you know, to to to, to be warm. Like like where where do they go? What is an acceptable option for the media, for pundits, for the public and for the opposition? Yeah, it's I mean that's a good question. I I don't know if I have I have an answer to it and uh, you know have, especially when you haven't been in that position, it's hard yeah, to judge. Like, no one here has like? been prime minister. No, no, and even, but even with the security implications, right? Like, do you have to close down the store like the way the Secret Service does right. in the U.S. if a president wants to go buy a book or whatever, right? Um, I mean, we've unfortunately, le we're leaning more and more towards that point in this country, and that's a whole other discussion as well. But I do think, 
like the scope of it has to be understood as well. Like it's a, it's a, the value of this space is massive. Like there's a lot of private areas, even, you know, in, in countries where the weather is warmer, where you can get a private villa of some kind or whatever, which is, I would presume within the, the range of what a member of parliament and certainly the prime minister, and especially one with a fortunate privileged background can afford, um, you know, without requiring that level of gift. So I, I understand that. But again, I, it's a delicate exercise because I, I don't, I find it distasteful as well when we start talking about the security costs because my own party did it when we were official opposition to then Prime Minister Harper, right? And it's just, I, I think that's, there's a needle that needs to be thread. It's not always done very yeah. well on like what's the actual mistake here. And to me, the mistake is very clearly a Prime Minister who goes in front of the mic and says that he has empathy for people and demonstrates the opposite again. I, I undoubtedly he does have empathy, but unfortunately in politics you have to show it as much as you tell it. Right, and, and look, I'm with you on the security stuff. There's a threat environment out there for politicians right now that we should not underestimate and make light of. And you know, we we want to protect our leaders, uh, you know, in, in a first world democracy. Uh, but, but you know, Emily, just as a final point, like, w what is the vacation option? Like, put Justin Trudeau aside for any prime minister. Is there a vacation option that that is? criticism and controversy free given all of the associated costs that, that go with it. I mean, other than going to just Harrington Lake all the time. I'm not going to like my answer, uh, <laughs> but the issue here is not what kind of vacation do we find. The question is what kind of level of economic inequalities do we accept right. <laughs> as a society? No, that's a good answer. Uh, because, as long, because as long as that's going to happen, uh, people are going to be who are stuck in the winter uh, in Canada, in the cold, cannot afford a vacation, looking at something like that, there is no option that's going to look and feel good to them. Uh, if that political leader is at the same time trying to make them feel like, you know, they share the same human condition. And so the issue here is not where can the prime minister vacation. The question is, we have a society that is increasingly broken by this level of inequalities that we accept. Uh, and it makes people angry. And so if we want to solve that anger, if we do want to have the prime minister being able to go on a, on a vacation and people not being feeling jealous, uh, we need to uh, qual the feeling of people being dissatisfied with their own level of living. Um, that's the only way that's not going to become a story every winter. Okay, you're wrong, because I really like that answer, because it was really smart. <laughs> I want to thank you for being here with me tonight. Uh, Michelle Cadario, Kate Harrison, Matthew Dubé, and Emily Nicola. Thanks so much. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.